Let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to attempt to finish our series on the lives of Elijah and Elisha today. The title will be The Just and Righteous Ways of God, Part 2. We started last week with uh, one of the four, the four last events in the life of Elisha. And uh, that was the besieged city that was rescued. That was in 2 Kings chapter 6. Today, as we begin, uh, we'll talk about a widow's land restored and then a wicked king replaced and a dead man revived. Uh, all of these events in the life of Elisha show that God is able to do exactly what he wants to do, and all that he does is exactly just and right, and so the just and righteous ways of God. I mentioned last week, De Deuteronomy 32.4, wonderful verse, he is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. We come to this uh, chapter, and the first six verses tell us about a widow's land that is restored. The events in Elisha's life are not necessarily in, biblical, in the Bible in chronological order. This story of the, uh, the Shunammite woman, uh, Gehazi is actually telling Joram, the king of Israel, what great things Elisha had done. And this account in 2 Kings 8 must have happened before Gehazi became a leper. That was back in chapter 5. And so this probably took place out of the sequence that we have in, in, our, in our Bibles. Elisha warned this woman about what was ahead in verses 1 and 2. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine. And it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Again, this woman is described as the one whose son he had restored, that is, Elisha had restored. Actually, God restored him back to life. This was the Shunammite woman that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 4. She and her husband, remember, built a room on their wall because Elisha passed through there often, and they wanted to give him a chamber where he could stay, a place, a room. And Elisha, in return, asked what he could do for her kindness. Gehazi noted that she had no children and that her husband was old. And Elisha told her that within a year, she would have a son, and she did. And later, when her son died, the woman went to Mount Carmel to get Elisha. And God brought the boy back to life. We know it was a miracle because of the wording that we covered in chapter 4, and also by the fact that it's being repeated to Gehazi, or by Gehazi to King Joram here in chapter 8. It was a miraculous thing. This was an unusual thing. God did it, and now he's retelling it. Elisha warned her that a seven-year famine was coming. This is probably the famine that we looked at back in chapter 4 when the, prophets, the school of the prophets, those guys were sent out to gather gourds, and remember one of them brought back a wild or a poison gourd and, uh, to make the stew. So at the end of verse 1, we read that, word, that phrase, the Lord hath called for a famine. Let's remember that God is in control of everything. The weather, he causes crops to produce, he causes crops to fail. He made a promise to Israel that if they were obedient, 
uh, he would do certain things, and, and then he gave a warning that if they were disobedient, then there would also be some results for that. Uh, let's just turn back in Leviticus chapter 26 and just look at a few verses there. Leviticus chapter 26, and we'll see what God had said in the law to Israel. Leviticus 26, uh, right at the beginning of the chapter, verses, let's read verses 3 and 4 first. Again, there's an if-then. This is a, if you do this, then I will do this. Verses uh, 3 and 4 of Leviticus chapter 26. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Verse 14, so follow down the passage there, but, but if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and down to verses 20 and 21, this is the then, these are the results, your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the tree of the land yield her fruits. And if ye walk contrary unto me, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon your, you according to your sins. So this famine that we're reading about in 2 Kings 8 is a result of their disobedience. Notice he told the, the Shunammite woman, arise and go. That's a wonderful phrase that we find several times in Scripture. I would recommend that you do a study of those words. You'll find it in Jacob's life, in Joseph's life, uh, in Jacob and Joshua's lives, in David's, in Elijah's, uh, and in Jonah's life. Arise and go. And we, we see that they were, they were obedient to those things, except Jonah. It took him a while to be obedient. But arise and go. Specific understandable instructions. And we would do well to follow the examples of those in Scripture whom God blessed because they did exactly what he told them to do. Don't put your roots down so deep that when God says arise and go, you say, well, I've got to take care of some things first. Be ready to obey God immediately. He also told the woman, sojourn where, wherever you can. Now the word sojourn means specifically in the, in the Old Testament to turn aside from the road to a place and stay there, to remain, to dwell. He told her to take her household. God had worked a miracle to give a son to this Shunammite woman. He had worked another miracle in bringing him back to life, as we mentioned. So she had every reason to trust God in the instructions that he was giving her now in this famine. Uh, can you look back and see how God has provided for you in times of famine? It may not have been easy, but you obeyed him. You did what he told you to do. And have you noticed how your obedience will affect others? It affected this woman's family. Uh, and so does your obedience. Uh, so Your disobedience also affects others, doesn't it? Stay on course, keep obeying him. So she did what Elijah, Elisha told her to do. She took her household. Now some suggest here that her husband was probably dead by this time, and she was the one responsible for making these decisions. Remember Gehazi said that he was older uh, back in chapter 4. So she traveled probably 60 miles southwest to the Mediterranean area that was occupied by the Philistines. would be between uh, Joppa and Gaza. 
And she stayed there for seven years. The Philistines at this time weren't a threat as they had been previously to Israel. There were other Israelites living there. The woman made a plea for her house and her land when she returned. And this is what we pick up in verse 3. It came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. We read the word cry there, and the word is a real intense word. It means to cry out loudly. It's used when you call out so that people will gather together. She cried. It was intense. The direction of her cry was unto the king. What did she cry? Well, she's probably asking for permission to purchase the property back that was originally hers before. The law of Moses established that that land would stay in families. The property would always be to that original family as the promised land was given to them. Well, her land was restored. We pick that up in verses 4 through 6. And the king talked with Gehazi the servant. Now, in, in your mind, you're going to back up. She hasn't come into the king's presence yet. Okay? The story, we've got to set the stage for her entrance into the king with her plea. So the king is talking with Gehazi, the servant of the, man of, the, of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king and for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. And this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. That is, validated the story. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of her field since the day that she left the land, even until now. What a wonderful, merciful way that God deals with this Shunammite woman. Joram was asking Gehazi to tell him all the great things that Elisha had done. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, we read, Joram, that is the king of Israel, Joram's interest in Elisha seems to have been motivated by curiosity rather than conviction. There is no evidence that Joram ever abandoned his apostate ways and became a faithful follower of the Lord. As I thought about that, I thought, well, whatever the motivation, people are curious to know about God. Who is he? How does he work? And your testimony, the way God has worked in your life, is one of the most powerful tools that you can use, that God can use in another person's life. So whether they're just curious, whether they will be convicted by the Spirit, tell them what God has done. This is what's being related here. Providentially, the woman and her son came in just at the moment that Gehazi was telling her how the woman's son had been brought back to life. Have you ever had that happen in your life? You say, well, nothing that dramatic. But do you recognize that God has everything perfectly timed in your life? As you're walking with him, as you're living for him, there are no mistakes in time. God's timing is always perfect. And so in verse 5, this is the woman. And not only that, this is the son. He was dead. He's alive. He's still alive. And the king appointed an officer to restore her property. As I read that, I thought about a verse in Proverbs that was a great reminder to me that God can change the heart and the mind of a king. 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Don't give up praying about things. God can change a king's heart. Remember, this is the time of apostasy. Israel was living in rebellion against the God of Israel. And they were reaping the results, that famine, a result of that sin. Joram the king, he had no regard for the worship of Jehovah. And yet, here is God blessing the faith of this woman. God is never limited by evil men when he wants to bring a blessing into your life. He promises to supply your needs. And those promises are not hindered by, well, you don't know the, the economic circumstances that I'm in right now. You don't understand the political uh, dilemma that we find ourselves in or the, the, the society that I live in. God is able to do these things and to give great blessing in your life in spite of whatever's happening in your circumstances. She was given her home and land, the things that she was asking for, plus all the produce that that land had yielded until this day. This was above and beyond what she was asking for. And isn't that like our God? We read that in the New Testament in Ephesians 3.20 that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. What are some lessons in this narrative? First, obey God. Do what he tells you to do. Be listening to him. When he says arise and go, don't have your roots down too deeply. Say, okay, Lord, I'll be obedient, whatever you say. Don't doubt his timing. He has everything in control. You say, well, if that had only happened, if I had only known that yesterday, God didn't want you to know it yesterday. His timing is perfect. Another great lesson, trust him to provide. Our, our verses for the year, our verse for the year, Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, and knock. Be in prayer. Trust him. He will provide. We come to the next narrative in the second half of chapter 8. We see a wicked king replaced. Now, he's replaced by another wicked king, but God is in control as he replaces him. Okay? Ben-Hadad was sick. He wanted to know if he's going to live or die, verses 7 through 9. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither, that is, to Damascus. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burden, and came and stood before him, and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, I, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Thy son, he's talking about the king of Syria now, to Elisha, because of thy son, demeaning him, and yet the, lifting the authority of Elisha. But then he adds, king of Syria. You don't forget who Ben-Hadad is. But he sent me to thee, saying, shall I recover of this disease? Now remember who this is. This is the same Ben-Hadad that laid siege to the city of Samaria, where there were, uh, was a famine in the city because of that siege. He's Israel's enemy. Ben-Hadad was the one who sent letters uh, along with Naaman, the, the, the leper. Uh, he sent it to the king of Israel, Joram. And, and Joram was all, Why do, what do you expect from me? 
But Elisha stepped in, and, and God healed Naaman. And Ben-Hadad knew that story. He had sent the letter. He, this was, he knew Naaman. He was the one whose military plans had been thwarted because God revealed the plans to Elisha. Remember, shall we attack this? How did they know? Elisha knew because God told him. Who better to tell him whether he was going to live or not? God's man had established the fact that God spoke to him and he could know the future. So he sent Haziel to ask Elisha if he's going to recover. Ben-Hadad uh, told Haziel to take a present with him. He took every good thing of uh, Damascus and he sent the gift on 40 camels. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that is a lot of things to give to, as a gift. To have, it takes 40 camels to carry that. But the Bible Knowledge Commentary says it was customary in the, in the ancient Near East to make a great show of giving gifts, and it was fairly common to have one camel carry only one gift. So don't, don't be real impressed by that gift. Remember, Elisha was the one who refused Naaman's gift after the healing of the leprosy anyway, and maybe Ben-Hadad remembered that. I don't know. But here's the, here's the, the entourage that comes. And he also, with all this, these gifts, brought the question from Ben-Hadad, Shall I recover of this disease? Now we come to Elisha's answer in verses 10 through 13. In 10 and 11, Elisha said unto him, Go say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. And he, that is Elisha, settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. So here's the narrative. He's saying, Tell the king he's going to live. And yet, in reality, he's going to die. Now, I firmly believe that the Bible tells us that it's never right to lie. So what's going on here? Is this a lie? I don't believe so. Elisha said the king would recover, and he would have if Hazel hadn't stepped in and killed Ben-Hadad. Elisha didn't reveal that he knew Hazel at least in his presence, he knew Hazel was going to be the murderer of the king. But I think when he stared at him, that's when he's hoping that Hazel is going to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and Hazel wouldn't go through with this murder. So he's saying he'll recover. The disease is not going to harm him, it's not going to kill him. And the prophet knew more than if Ben-Hadad was going to get well or not. And Hazael should have understood that. If God can show, ben, uh, ben, uh, show Elisha the future, he would certainly be able to show, reveal this to him. So then we come to verse 12, uh, and, and it explains that Elisha was weeping at the end of verse 11, and, and we have the reason for that told to Hazael in verse 12. Hazael said, Why weepest thou? Weepeth. Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. He's seeing further down the road than just Ben-Hadad's health. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire. Their young men wilt thou slay with the sword. And wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. Hazael acted as if he didn't believe what Elisha was telling him. It was a false humility. Verse 13, Hazel said, 
But what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing or this huge wickedness? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So Hazael said, I'm just a dog. I have no authority to lead Syria against Israel to do these things that you've said. But the Lord revealed to Elisha that Hazael would be king. Now we come to Hazael's return in verses 14 and 15. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldst surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died, and Hazael reigned in his stead. What a tragic thing. These two wicked kings, Syrian kings. But an important note as we think about evil kings, in Mount Horeb, God had spoken to Elijah the prophet. Remember he said, I'm the only one left? And, and God gave Elijah three assignments. Number one was anoint Hazael king over Syria. The other, anoint Jehu king over Israel. And the third, anoint Elijah, Elisha prophet over Israel. Well, Elijah had anointed Elisha, but he didn't get to the other two appointments. And so when Elijah was taken up into the whirlwind, we can only assume that he had told Elisha, this is what you need to do to continue. And so he's giving this word now that Hazael is going to be the king. God appoints wicked kings to rule. Hazael didn't have to murder Ben-Hadad. God had already appointed that he would be the king in Syria, but he took things into his own hands. Some lessons from this section. What God says will come to pass. Hazael was wrong to murder Ben-Hadad, but he would be the king. Second, God appoints even wicked kings to rule. Remember, he was using Syria to bring judgment on his disobedient children, Israel. And third, when God uses wicked men in a punitive way, there's no excuse for the righteous to forsake God and to give up. It's possible to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And Elisha did. Well, the last event is found all the way back in chapter 13 of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 13, verses 14 through 21. Here a dead man revived. Fascinating story. Joash visited Elisha on his deathbed. It says in verse 14, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, or Jehoash, uh, the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, if you go historically, the kings of Israel, we had uh, Joram that we were just talking about. Jehu came next after jo Joram and then Joash, or like I said, Jehoash. Um, so Elisha has been the prophet of God now for 56 years, if you include the time that he was serving under Elijah. King Joash used the exact words that Elijah had, Elisha had used back in 2 Kings 2.12 when Elijah was taken up by God. 
What's, what's he saying? He knew that Elisha was used by God. And he knows that now Elisha is going to cross over from earth to heaven through death, not through being taken up in a whirlwind. So Elisha gives this prophecy in verses 15 through 19. Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed or stopped. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldst have smitten five or six times, then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. You see some symbolism here by telling the, ting, the king to take up arrows and this bow. He was showing that the king would be the one that God used to defeat Syria. Elisha's hands on the king's hands shows that he could only be victorious because of God's power. The action, he opened the eastward window, the one that faced across the Jordan to Syria. The arrow shot represents victory. Verse 18, Elisha told Joash to, to strike the ground with the remaining arrows. And he only did that for three times. Now, how would he know how many times to strike the ground? But this is all prophetic. The rebuke came. He said, you should have hit the ground five or six times. Then you would have been able to not only destroy Syria, but would, um, you, you would be able to eventually destroy Syria if you had struck the ground once. Now you're just going to have three victories. So Carson, uh, D.A. Carson presumes here that this signifies a lack of faith or determination. Well, we come now to verses 20 and 21, and Elisha is buried. Elisha died, and they buried him. This is probably two or three years after that burial. The, the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming of the inn of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast him, the man, into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood upon his feet." I love the way Elisha's life ends. It goes on even after his death, doesn't it? The word for sepulcher here is a grave or burying place. It would have been probably a cave or a tomb that was hewn out of a rock. He would have been placed there after the body was wrapped in linen. But here's another miracle. A group of Moabites invade the land. Those burying a friend, a man, saw this, this band who were their enemies and in their haste, they put the corpse in Elisha's grave. When the body touched the bones of Elisha, the dead man came to life. The story would have been repeated by those who were there. This, again, is an unusual event. This is a miracle. And I would imagine it was even repeated by the man who was raised to life. What lessons do we have from this last section? Well, from the death, deathbed prophecy of victory for Joash, 
we can trust God's strength and fight the battles that God gives us in his power, in his strength alone. And from this fact that uh, even after death, Elisha's life had an impact on someone else, God is able to use your life well after you're gone. Your testimony. What do others know about you? We still know about the righteousness of Abel, because the Bible says, He being dead, yet speaketh. Know that we would have an influence on others that would last beyond our lifetime. I look back over the entire narrative of Elijah and Elisha. I remember what was said in 2 Kings 2.9. Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit to rest on him. Do you remember that? Elijah said, well, if you see me when I'm taken to heaven, then that will be done to you. And it was fulfilled. And I kept a list of the miracles that God did through Elijah. There are 14 miracles on that list. And I also kept a list of what God did through the prophet Elisha. And the list had 27 on it until I came to the miracle of the resurrection of this man after Elisha's death. That makes 28. How fitting. For a man who was promised a double portion. That's the, the oldest son's inheritance. A double portion. And I say, I think about that. I hope someday that the mantle that was passed on from Elijah to Elisha would be picked up, maybe even by one of you this morning, and say what Elisha said as he crossed the Jordan. Where is the God of Elijah? Remember what Elijah's name meant? My God is Jehovah. Elisha's name, my God is salvation. And our world today desperately needs to see that God still saves, that Jesus saves, and that he is your God. May God use each of us by his grace and in his strength for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the lives of these two men, men who were totally surrendered to you. And we see the miracles that you did in, in and through them. And we can't help but believe that you will do great things through us as we faithfully serve you. I pray that as we close this service, that there will be those who say, I want to be like Elijah or Elisha. I want to pick up that mantle and serve God faithfully until he calls me home. And may the testimony of our lives, even after death, continue to bring glory to God and others to Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.